Hello and welcome to the Local Myth Storian podcast with me, Eli Lewis Lysett. This time I'm sharing a live recording, a stream I did on December the 7th for members of the website entitled The Friar's Fool, A Brief History of English Devil Law and Its Place in Cheshire Legend. Now, as with all live recordings, there's a few bumps in the road as we go along, but I didn't notice the strange thumping that occasionally seems to have been picked up on the microphone when I was recording. I'm hoping that was just some quirk of the process and not anything to do with the actual subject matter that we were discussing. It was quite odd. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for all your support for the project and the podcast throughout 2023. I'll be back in the new year with some more full feature-length podcasts and lots of exciting things lined up for 2024. So thanks again, and I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good evening and welcome. Uh, Great to see so many of you here uh, doing these Zoom events. Always a bit tricky. And tonight I'm going to run through um, a new feature. It's not going to be out until the new year, probably even the summertime. And that feature is about something we don't really focus on too much in history or folklore, which is the devil law of England and its place here in Cheshire. So if everybody's ready, you've got a sherry or a whiskey, let's run through it. And at the end, we'll do some questions. The eeriness of the English countryside, it's a topic that has inspired writers and artists for hundreds of years. There's something in the interaction and the interplay between the mind and the landscape, which means that even on a clear summer's day, a certain sense of presence can be induced in all of us when walking alone, along in the country lanes and the trackways of our countryside. It's also a feeling that is wonderfully easy to self-generate. Whatever you're doing right now, unless you're on this Zoom meeting, Take a moment to pause. Picture yourself on a windswept beach or standing amongst the cornfields. There's no one else in sight. You're aware of little but your own isolation. You're safe, of course. After all, this is the 21st century. Yet somehow you feel compelled to look over your shoulder. You're alone. But honestly, does it really feel like it? Not completely. And with good reason. For as long as we have walked our landscape and interacted with our natural environment, amongst its kaleidoscope of seasonal change, our synapses have fired with a distinct power. From the realities of an ancient land, where to be alone was a genuine danger of life-threatening proportions, I'm thinking about wolves and bears or tribal violence, through to the cloaking of the myths and lore present in our pre-industrial past, where witches, boggarts and spectres could prey upon the wits of the vulnerable, Bad things happen when we're outside, or so we have been continually conditioned to believe. And that's without wrapping the subject up in its most liminal, inspirational blanket of all. As a Christian nation, by which I mean the historical prescience of our collective cultural touchstones, have been mostly forged by the stories, fears and faith of Christian tradition across a span of some 1700 years. England has long been a patchwork of mythical community repositories, cauldrons spouting forth well-hewn tales inspired by ideas of good and evil. And nowhere has that feeling of being privy to a half-heard subconscious conversation been nurtured more vividly than in the looming figure of the devil. In the time before a Christian framework had been superimposed across our vision of England's wilder realms, there was to be found a world filled with wondrous and dreamlike possibilities. 
This was the land of ogres, fairies and trolls that would stalk the hills, the rivers, the bridges and the forests and ensure that there were stories aplenty to entangle the minds of the people. Archetypical bogeymen all, filling the gaps and mingling with a host of Celtic anti-deities and Norse folk creations, feeding the mind's fundamental fear of the elemental. Onto this stage of our most primal alarms, the devil arrives in the later medieval period via a broad wash of folklore that had swollen throughout the land during the preceding centuries. But the figure that arrives is accompanied not by the horde of grinning demonic helpers we might expect, keen to do his terrible bidding at every turn, but rather a litany of bumbling, half-baked schemes and plans that have seemingly proved no match for us mere mortals. He is a constant victim of our wits, to the point that he could almost draw our sympathy. And it's from this period that we get our first look at what he's been up to in the years since the rise of Anglo-Saxon Christianity. Turns out he's been quite busy. From the folklore, he's variously been firing his arrows but missing his targets due to the actions of all manner of cunning cobblers, jaggers and bakers. He's been searching for souls at all hours but getting his directions all wrong and getting lost in the forest. He's also been burying treasure a lot and then repeatedly forgetting where he's hid it. In fact, there really isn't all that much he's accomplished at all. At every turn, his fearsome reputation tarnished by simple, logical, plain old human reactions. I'm not meaning to poke fun here, after all, you never know who might be watching, but it's staggering and wonderful how the lore and legend of the later medieval period brewed up this cultural tradition connecting that grand figure of Christian woe to the earlier history around them. Inserting the devil as the butt of a joke amongst the explanations a community would devise regarding the historical curiosities of the local landscape, be them standing stones, prehistoric quarries, or even sinkholes in the forest. The truth, of course, is that many of those features connected with these stories are totems of our collective ancient past. It's just that come the fevering Christian era, the devil makes a convenient scapegoat for the loss of collective memory so needed to leave those recollections and the old gods that go with them firmly in the past. That in the creation of such old tropes, old Nick then becomes a much mock figure, a fashionable bonus for the storytellers involved. Yet it wasn't just pure fumbling that filled the legends about old clumsy hoofs. Some tales left from the era, particularly those more elaborately developed and definitively structured, find a certain commonality of morality warning within them. Many of these have been granted and embellished by individuals directly attached to local religious institutions. On the odd occasion the devil does prevail, it's mostly due to the unbridled greed of the drunken merchant or the insatiable, unfaithful wife. Flaunt your sin, and he may well prevail against the odds. By far, though, the most well-documented and well-remembered section of law left to us from his medieval semi-comedic heyday is centred specifically around our parish churches. He's been forever trying to destroy towers, and even more prevalent is his penchant for carrying away stones during their construction. And it's this particular strand of law that has flourished here in Cheshire. Following all of this myth-making, however, sometime around the Reformation, a very different idea of the devil takes sudden shape and the mood definitively changes. In his second act, no one is laughing at the idea of the horned anti-god roaming around their village anymore. It's a testament to the genuine fear generated by the religious conflict and tribulation pouring into the psyche of the rural population from the fallout of the head-to-head -head between the Catholic Church and the emerging European Protestant movements of the 16th century 
But across a period of around 100 years, say 1520 to 1620, the figure of the devil finally becomes something like the deity of fear that many of us might otherwise assume he always had been. Suddenly, those markers of prehistory to which the rural population had always had a connection become deathly beacons. We find stone circles and standing stones, previously the preserve of clumsy demonic hands and fairy gatherings, to now be the stone-cast remains of those who have been caught cavorting out in the wilds in hope of communication with spirits and demons. Those involved now somehow transformed to stone by unseen dark magic. In the very fabric of our historic buildings too, witch marks, protective symbols carved into the timber and in our churches the stone, appear in sudden garnish to ward off evil spirits and those perceived to be the devil's all too human followers, the witches. A new strand of belief grew around this due to a genuine view that our villages and rural communities were filled by local folks who would choose to follow a darker path and who as a consequence were now actively pursuing such a connection. In time, the witch craze will be born with a new form of social hysteria that will lead to the execution of more than 100 people in England alone. In this period, the devil is looking on from afar, a shadow on the heath, a black form spotted on the river bridge. He takes to visiting households at night and meeting his mortal kin in the old places of the natural world. Ever present, yet somehow eternally just out of sight, and so the law changes too. It switches and twists away from the old medieval tales, finding itself reborn in specific individuals and events of the times. The formal legal recourse, which then went together with the witch craze, only served to add an official sense of legitimacy to the concerns of the people who bore witness. As time moved on again, and through the period of the Industrial Revolution, where so many of our folk tales, previously isolated and dispersed across hundreds of different communities, were poured into melting pots in the new boom towns of cotton and silk, the law changes again. Now the devil is a distant, elemental force. He's in the wind and the rocks, and he may well carry you off in a storm, and it's from this wild guise he slowly settles into the sentience of the landscape, the glimmer of which is perhaps still with you and I to this very day. Such legends of the devil are spread pretty evenly through the towns and villages of England. From Hereford to Humberside, they'll be present in books of local folk tales. Echoes of these tales will be available for those who seek them in the names of places we drive by every day. Here in Cheshire, there is a particularly rich vein with its own distinct influences melting in from the wilds of North Wales, but most remarkable in the local canon is without doubt that of the dark fool of the medieval age. And so now we will look to a series of devilish encounters from Cheshire legend that combine to make for the most strange and wonderful example of historically tethered devil law in the county. The Church of St. Chad's near the modern-day Cheshire town of Winsford, but more precisely located in what was once the medieval village of Over, represents something of a holy grail when it comes to English parish churches. Nestled at the end of a trackway, off from the busy main road that runs adjacent, the walk towards it beneath the trees is one of the closest experiences an historically aware visitor could wish for in their fundamental quest for time travel. The present building's origin comes to us from the 14th century, its sandstone ashlar construction creating an exterior that can be read like an ancient book. Look closely and amongst the mason marks that adorn its doorways and walls, you will find other, more curious markings too. Not least of all, the well-defined pentagrams carved into its tower. It is a church that stands at the heart of the greatest piece of devil law in the whole of Cheshire history. 
The devil had long been associated in Cheshire with the wilder places of the Mid-Cheshire Ridge, an elevated strip of land from which he could cast his eye across much of the county. It was something he enjoyed doing with particular vigour when it came to the issue of the county's churches, and his chief nemesis amongst their clergy, a certain Friar Francis of Vale Royal Abbey, a man whose soul he was determined to possess. The devil knew well not to take on the friar and his brethren during the working day, and so he took to the skies above Cheshire as a raven, spying on the nocturnal habits of his prey. The friar was a keen drinker and an even more ferocious feeder, and would duly retire to his chamber each night, full of bally, dreaming a deep, swollen sleep. One night, after a particularly vigorous session of gluttony, the devil decided it was time to act, and so through the night sky he swooped, flying into the abbey before settling at the end of the friar's bed. Waking at the shaking of his foot, the friar saw his midnight visitor standing over him, who then proceeded to offer the friar an endless supply of food and wine on condition that he placed his seal upon a parchment that hovered in the air beside him, granting the devil his soul upon death. The friar agreed, but only on the condition that he also received a dozen tied bands of hay from the grass of nearby Martin. In the days following the Hallish Pact, carts of food and wagons laden with wine began to arrive at the abbey. Meanwhile, the devil scoured the lands around Martin in search of grass to turn into hay. What the friar had failed to tell him, though, was that the farmers of Martin ploughed their land so thoroughly that there was rarely a blade of grass left to pick, let alone enough to make the dozen hay bands he had promised to deliver. And so the friar feasted with all the monks of the abbey, safe in the knowledge that his soul, despite the magical contract, would be safe for all eternity. Retiring to his lofty lair atop Beeston Crag, the devil sought a new target. He could see there was a new church tower being built over in the village of Acton, and he sat and pondered, considering the hurling potential of the old pagan standing stones studded about the ridgeway. Picking one particularly impressive monolith, he took aim and launched it into the early morning sky. At the church, the masons heard a great thunder in the clouds above them. They listened as it passed, before seeing a great blue flame fill the sky to the east. The devil was angry with himself. First the friar had tricked him, and now his aim was so off, he would surely be considered a fool once more by those he deemed should fear him. The next time he would get it right. That night he took to the air as the raven once more. He would find a completed church which he could attack directly. He circled the whole of Cheshire, resting when he reached the peak foothills. Dejected, it seemed nothing suitable was to be found. That was until he made his way home and flew over the church of St. Chad's in the village of Over. It was barely a wing's waft from Vale Royal Abbey. Why hadn't he thought of it before? And what a prize. If he couldn't have the friar's soul, this would do very nicely. He flew back on towards Beeston Crag again to collect a stone from the hills with the intention of dropping it in destruction of the church at Over. What the devil didn't know, however, was that Friar Francis and his fellow monks had spotted him. See, for all his efforts, his form as a raven didn't quite convince. There was something unnatural in his approximation and the monks had come to learn his distorted shape well against the night sky. As he approached the church from above, they were waiting for him. Shocked in an instant, he dropped the stone and in panic, opted for an even more ambitious plan. Landing in the woods nearby, he now transformed his shape again, rising as a great muscular horned beast. He raced towards the church and lifted the whole building aloft in his claws. 
But just as he was taking to flight again, intent on sending the church crashing down to earth, a great sound filled the air. It was the ringing of dozens of church bells as all the churches in Cheshire struck up in unison, filling the devil's ears with a song so great he could not help but fail in his grasp. He spun through the air trying to maintain control, battling against the holy hymn of the ringing bells. In frustration, he lost his senses, the church tumbling down to earth and settling in a nearby hollowway intact. Embarrassed once more, defeated again by the monks of Vale Royal, he turned away and sped back to his home in the hills of the Mid-Cheshire Ridge in shame, never to venture into the villages and towns of Cheshire again. These three tales, combined here in their full narrative, have held strong in the wider folklore of Cheshire for the past 500 years. There are references to each in the ledgers and chronicles of the county, and in the case of the Friar of Vale Royal, even too in the ballad sheets of the 17th century. Collated together, the story makes for a genuine folktale of the county, but unless we can convince ourselves to somehow take the story literally, and believe the devil really was flying about Cheshire determined to carry out some seriously high-grade vandalism, we should ask what was really going on. What's it really telling us? And what truths lie behind the tale and its characters? There's some interesting geographical connections to be made straight away. The spot at which the devil's intended missile for Acton Church is said to have landed would actually become known as the village of Bluestone, lately Broughton, on account of the colour of the boundary stone that will be set in the village throughout the later medieval period. Similarly too, his resting place in his winged form in the foothills of the peaks at the eastern edge of the county today would become known by the name of Ravens Hill or as we call it today, the village of Raynau. There are other more colloquial observations too. The aborted attempt to destroy the church at Over with a stone has been tethered to the folk record as a potential explanation for the curious stone found in the modern day churchyard. It's likely a parish boundary stone reused from the earlier pre-Christian ritual site that the location most likely was, its circular churchyard being a clear signpost to the ancient past. And the whole central ordeal of the flying church itself is likely packaged together in the folk memory as being the reason the church did indeed move location, or rather changed stewardship. Our historical reality is the much more mundane rationale that the original church, having initially belonged to St Mary's Convent in Chester, would be gifted to Vale Royal Abbey in the late 1200s to provide extra income by way of its tithe rites. The devil residing on the Mid-Cheshire Ridge is itself noteworthy too. The hill range rising through the famously flat land base of the county was the earliest inhabited area of Cheshire. It was also the place that subsequently played host to the remnants and ruins of that ancient pagan culture long beyond its death with the invasion of Rome and the subsequent Christian rebirth of the wider world around it. The memory of the old world would serve primarily to twist and turn in the minds of the generations that followed. It was a distant yet somehow ever-present place, a place you didn't venture to, a wild, dark, lost other world looming over the lives of the people practicing the new Christian religion all around it. The devil of our tale fits firmly into that figure of our earlier medieval lore and is something which connects well on the timeline of the region's recorded history. The church at Over changed stewardship or ownership in the late 1270s as we have noted and the Tower of St Mary's at Acton, the largest in the county, was being built during the same period. There is no Friar Francis in the historical record but nor would we expect there to be. It was the abbot, the head figure of such institutions as Vale Royal Abbey that is recorded while friars simply are not. 
What is telling, though, is that the behaviour attributed to Fire Francis in the tale directly corresponds with that firmly associated with Vale Royal Abbey during the 1300s. The idea of the friar's gluttony effectively a thinly veiled code for the greed associated with the institution throughout the era. Alongside our legend and folklore, so sheathed in the Christian tradition, there are other, even older signposts dotted throughout the landscape associated with earlier connections to the figure we have come to recognise as that of the devil. For every more obvious devil's bridge or devil's well, there will be a hob hill or a grim lane. Let us not forget one of the earliest recording dwellings in the east of Cheshire was named in Old English as Pie Bake, literally meaning dwelling of the demon. Devil law is all around us, often hidden or just as frequently misunderstood. So the next time you're out in the open country, take a closer look at your map. Note the names of the features around you and drink in that sense of connection to something far older. You never know. Somewhere out there in the wilds of your ancient country landscape, he may well still be there, just waiting for you to notice, ever present as he always was. <laughs> <laughs>